Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Mission Church, Pastor Tyler here. Merry Christmas. Come on now. It's December. We're going to celebrate Christmas. We had our team come in and work hard so they could be uh, pretty. Can I say that word? Pretty. Uh, Festive for you. We got a little uh, nice little uh, plaid uh, flannel thing in the back. Uh, I love Christmas. Uh, My wife loves Christmas. Our house is decked out for Christmas. And so if you're watching at home, I just want to say Merry Christmas. We're um, in a series right now titled Knowing God. And uh, what I love about this is Christmas is all about Jesus. And so I feel like this is a perfect series for this time of year. But before I start, I got to get some thank yous real quick. Joe Little a couple weeks ago smashed it. Man, we have the best youth pastor. Joe Little, I love you. Great job. Uh, Paige, we love you. Oh, we love the Littles. And then last week, we had my mentor, my pastor in town, uh, Chad Veach. He smashed. Man, there's something about just prayer that changes us. And I just feel like that was not a message for the week, but really a deposit into our house. I've just been hearing so many things from people. Man, I'm going to pray more. Man, I'm believing in the power of prayer more. So, uh, Chad, thank you so much. Oh, we loved it. We loved it. Now, today, we're in week three of Knowing God, and the title of my message is Party Essentials. Party Essentials. Now, here's what I know. There ain't no party like a kingdom party, because the kingdom party don't stop, uh, if you know what I'm saying. Come on now. Uh, this uh, little uh, story in John 2 is about a wedding uh, with two people you don't know the name of, but it's Jesus' first miracle. And there's something about Jesus caring about some logistical oversight. You gotta think about this. Out of all the miracles in all the world, Jesus decides to do this, a wedding uh, miracle. Not walk on water, not raise the dead, and I believe there's a specific purpose why he made this his first miracle. Now let's just talk about party essentials and what that really means. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than going to uh, a party and not having the essential things that you expect. Here's what I mean by that. I went to a Super Bowl party a handful of years ago, and there's a handful of essential things that every Super Bowl party should have. One is just have food. I don't care what food, but just have a lot of food. Second thing is you gotta have a lot of people, because you got uh, different fans from different teams, you wanna be able to talk trash, you gotta enjoy the touchdowns together, enjoy the interceptions together, all the above. So you gotta have some people. But the third thing you need at a Super Bowl party is you need a big flat screen TV. Again, like flat screen TVs are like 30 bucks now at Costco. Well, we go over to our friend's house for a Super Bowl party. He opens up his entertainment center. Now, just give you a heads up. This guy is a successful businessman. I'm thinking he's going to have the setup of all setups. He opens up his entertainment center. It's a 30-inch tube TV. No flat screen. And remember, I, I, you know when you try to play something cool like, oh, I love it. I love your TV. You're, you're a retro kind of guy. I bet you listen to records instead of uh, MP3s. That, that's amazing. Cool tube TV. Is this like an antique that you wanted to hold on to? I, didn't, I couldn't do that. I literally was like, is this what we're watching the game on? I didn't hold back at all. I said, I said, come on, man. I'll go to Costco right now. I got 50 bucks. I'll buy you a 50-inch TV right this second. And we laughed about it. Watched the game on a 30-inch tube TV, the Super Bowl. Now, every year after that, it's been at my house. I got a 70-inch flat screen. You're all invited. I ain't chintzing out on the TV because it's essential. Second thing I'd say, uh, another uh, story about essential things is, I'll never forget uh, being 26 years old, being in LA, and uh, just celebrating my birthday. Now, my, my family lives up, uh, up in Washington. I wasn't married at the time, so I had a bunch of homies. And there's three things you could say that make a birthday essential. One would be uh, the birthday song. Got here, happy birthday. Second one is birthday cake. Third one's gifts. Well, I told all my buddies, 26, hey, I don't need any of those things. Let's just go see a movie. Yeah, I'm 26. It's all good. Let's just go see a movie. I'll never forget getting home. There was no birthday song. There was no birthday cake. No candles to blow out. There was no gifts. And I remember going to bed and being like, I will never allow my birthday to be this sad again. I was so sad. I want a birthday cake. I want some gifts. I want people to sing happy birthday. I didn't care if it was Red Robin just clapping their hands. Happy, happy birthday. Happy, happy birthday. I needed something. I got nothing. 
I learned from that. You need the essentials in your birthday party. Third one is, I'll never forget being in fifth grade, being promised a pizza party. What's the essential thing for a pizza party? Not just pizza, you need a lot of pizza. Now, our uh, fifth grade teacher said if we hit this goal of fundraising these pennies, we were collecting pennies, that we'd have a pizza party. I remember we collected all the pennies. I remember looking for pennies, bringing pennies, filling up two liter jars of pennies, and we raised all this money, these pennies, and then we had our pizza party. And she's like, all right, everybody, we're having our pizza party. I remember walking up to the pizza, and it was one slice per kid. I remember being in fifth grade, this ain't no pizza party, this is pizza snack. This is, like, this is almost like punishment. This is just warming up my engine. I'm so upset right now. If you've ever been to my house, you know what I'm talking about. I don't throw uh, just pizza parties. You're going home with a box of pizza. We have leftovers for days. That's an essential thing for pizza parties. Let's get a little more serious. The church. When you show up to church, what are the essentials? What is the most important thing about the party at church? I believe it's Jesus. I believe it's Christians being like Jesus and loving like Jesus. Let me go into a Super Bowl party and have a 30-inch TV. It bothered me a little bit. All good. I could still watch the game. Me going to my birthday. I was a little sad because I didn't get a song. Me having one slice. You know, it's just a story. But I'll never forget the first time I was invited to church. And there was a handful of things I expected, some essential things I expected at church. My grandma was the first one saved in our family. And it was the first time I said, okay, grandma, I'll go to church with them. Eighth grade. I put on my, my uh, basketball sweatshirt because, uh, you know, I'm, I, was, I was a hooper at the time and I was proud of it. And I remember putting a hat on and it was cool to wear a backwards hat. So this was my eighth grade best dressed self I could present to the Lord. I was bringing the coolest Tyler I could to the Lord. My best sweatshirt and my best hat backwards. I, I thought I was looking good. I remember walking into that church and this lady out of the blue just beelines to me. I'm thinking maybe she's going to, welcome to the house of God. I don't know what she's going to say. Oh my gosh, we're so glad you're here. It's a smaller church. She walks up to me and she just points straight to my head. She goes, how dare you wear a hat in God's house? You are dishonoring God. Take that hat off. And I remember just feeling so funny at the time. And I remember taking my hat off. And for the rest of the service, they were singing songs. And I just, I felt so shamed. I felt like such a failure. And this is the last, I was like, this is the last place I ever want to be. I'll never forget walking out of church in eighth grade. It took me three years to walk back through the doors of a church. Three years. Because the reality is, is I showed up to a church that had none of the essentials. I didn't see the love of God. I didn't experience the presence of God. I didn't hear the gospel preached. And therefore, I didn't want to be at that place. It had none of the essentials. And I just want to say something. One of the things that we are praying for today, and I've been praying for this message, is that if you're tuning in and you're somebody who you were at a church and you thought, oh, I thought the church would have some love in it. I thought the church would have some peace in it. I thought the church would have some forgiveness and grace. Oh, I thought it had some joy and community. But all I got was wound after wound. I'm walking out. Oh, I just want to say I'm sorry. If it's been years before you've walked into the church again, oh, come home. Oh, Mission Church, it's not a perfect place, but I believe it is a safe place. I believe we do have the essential things. I'm not saying we operate perfectly. We got some weird religious people. We're working on them. We're trying to love on them. We're trying to use the rod of God and say, stop being so religious. We're trying our best. Oh, but if you've been wounded by the church, I want to say I'm sorry. And what we see in this story in John 2, what we're going to see real quick is Jesus comes on the scene and things that religious people wouldn't value, Jesus shows that he does value. And some of you, if you're the religious one, this message is for you. Some of you, if you are the wounded one, oh, this message is for you. I believe that as you hear this message, I believe you're going to hear God say, come home. I believe you're going to hear him say, I'm sorry on the behalf of my people. And some of them weren't even his people. They weren't even representing him. Oh, and for the ones that you've just been kind of apathetic, oh, this message is for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for what you're doing uh, at Mission Church. I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word. I, I thank you that there is an opportunity today for people's lives to be changed, 
for the captives to be set free, for the, the, the sleepy ones to wake back up again, for, for dead ones to come to life. Oh, Lord, for, for families to be reconciled. So, Lord, I pray that my words will fall to the floor and your words soar. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you. And everybody said, amen. Well, hey, we're going to uh, uh, take it off in John 2. John 2, this is where the story takes place. And now, uh, just give you a little context about John 2. It's a wedding. Now, don't picture an American wedding. It's nothing like that kind of wedding. You gotta understand what a Middle Eastern wedding at this time when Jesus was walking on the earth looked like, okay? Let me just give you a little bit of context. Uh, you would say yes, you'd have your I do moment at the wedding. It'd be an awesome party. They wouldn't go on a honeymoon. At the end of the first night, they would literally carry them around, parade them around throughout town, the longest way home, lit by torches in front of them so everybody could see the bride and the bridegroom. Oh, it's an amazing thing. They wanted to take the longest route so everybody could see him and celebrate him. Can I just say even just a little pearl in that? Some of you like shortcuts and short routes. I'm just gonna let you know something. God loves long routes. You look throughout the Bible, very few times does he go, boop, quick left turn. He loves the long route. He loves to show off his miracles in your life. He loves to show the setup. And he loves to have the story play out. So if you don't like the long story playing out right now, buckle up. God loves to show his people off. So, so they go back to their home and they sit there. They don't go on a honeymoon, honeymoon they go to their house. Here's what happens for a week. They put crowns on their heads. Literally crowns on the bride and bridegroom's head. The bride and groom, they, they get crowns on their head and they get gifts brought to them. They get celebrated and they have a party for almost a week straight. They eat, they drink wine and they just celebrate these people. And here's why they're doing it at this time. If you don't know anything about the Jewish culture this time, they're being oppressed by the Romans. It is a poor culture and it is an oppressed culture. But for one week when there's a wedding, for one week there's a wedding, they're reminded, you are royalty, put a crown on your head. You are, you are a son and daughter of the king of kings, the king of the Jews, that's who you're a son and daughter of. You are not the oppressed one, you are not a poor one, you're a rich one, and they remind them. And that's why church is so important. Can I be honest? Church is like a wedding feast. Church is like a wedding. It reminds us on Sunday, you are royalty. It reminds us on Sunday, you are not a poor person, you are rich in Christ. There is an inheritance for your life. It's an amazing thing what weddings represented back then. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and whoever was planning the wedding didn't bring enough wine to the party. And so the wedding's gone for only two days. And the first miracle Jesus says is, ah, on my watch, the party never stops. On my watch, the celebration doesn't stop. So he comes to the scene, and here's what happens. Let's read it in John 2. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festival, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not a problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out uh, and take it to the master of ceremonies. Master of ceremonies is just the head waiter. It'd be like the wedding banquet caterer. It's the head waiter of the person, uh, just in charge of making sure the ceremony is amazing. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, uh, uh, he said this. He called the bridegroom over and host all, uh, the bridegroom over and said this. A host always serves the best wine. So you gotta catch this. They bring it over. The master ceremony takes a sip and he's so confused, he brings the bridegroom over uh, and the host over and he goes, hold on a second. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone uh, has had a lot of drink, he brings out uh, the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. The miraculous sign at Cana and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
I just love that line. It's the first time he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. You need to see his glory to believe. I'm praying right now in this, in this message, in this service, that God would open, you, open your eyes to his glory and you would believe and become one of his disciples. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Stop. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the seven party essentials for the wedding feast that Jesus shows us in this rich uh, story right here, this, in his first miracle. The first one's this, ready? Party essential number one, invite Jesus. Sounds so simple. But you know successful pe- people, you know what they do? They do the routine things routinely. You, 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 I find Christians inviting Jesus in their life on Sunday, but they forget to invite him on Monday. They forget to invite him on Tuesday. And then Sunday comes around like, why is it that just Sunday feels different? Because you're inviting Jesus to be a part of your life. Check this verse out. It says this right here in verse one and two. And the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Invited to the wedding. Now just catch this. This wedding is insignificant by worldly standards. It's in a rural town outside of the main city. So it's a nothing like couple. They're not in the main city. The, the, the rich ones would live in the city. So it's a rural town. They don't even mention the bride and groom. And Jesus is invited to an insignificant wedding and it becomes the most famous wedding of all time. Jesus' first miracle. Let's just be real honest real quick. Elementary school, I felt beyond insignificant. I, I didn't get a lot of affirmation as a kid. Uh, and so when I went to elementary school, I thought I'd find it there. I'll be honest, I was never the first kid picked at the recess. I was never the, t- sixth grade straight, I was waiting to be the teacher's pet because every teacher loves somebody, always picking that person to read, always saying, oh, da-da-da, and always giving that person attention. I'd come into class, and, I'd, and I'm an achiever by nature. I want people to love me. So I'd come to class, and I just wanted to feel significant. Teacher after teacher, never was I was th- their favorite. And I just remember leaving elementary school just feeling so insignificant and just not having a lot of self-worth. I'll never forget the first time I tasted significance. It was in junior high and I got a little taller. I became a baller. Holy cow, I can start rapping. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I was a shot caller. Okay, anyways, um, old song, Ski Low, shout out. Um, uh, I remember feeling significance for the first time. The problem is it was this fleeting taste of significance. If I had a good game in basketball, I felt good about myself. If a girl finally had a crush on me, that was ninth grade, the first time a girl ever said they liked me. I was shocked, but I was proud of it. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Colleen, for having a crush on me. The first girl that ever really had a crush on me, shout out, ninth grade crushes. Um, and I got in this weird cycle for a few years. And I was chasing significance through sports and through girls. And the problem is, is if you don't get out of that cycle in high school, you'll graduate and create a new cycle. You'll try to find significance in your career or in, in, in a spouse or in kids, and you'll chase this thing that never really does satisfy you. Can I just tell you something real quick? The only thing that brings significance to your life is this amazing man named Jesus. He was fully man and fully God. He is our Savior. And I'm telling you, when I invited Jesus to be a part of my life, it changed everything. It changed my Mondays. It changed my, it changed, it changed my marriage trajectory, everything. Can I just tell you something real quick? A Monday is never a normal Monday anymore when you invite Jesus. Mondays are like, oh, Mondays, Mondays. Oh, I hate Mondays. Start Monday this way. Jesus, I invite you to be a part of my Monday today. Whatever you have for me. If it's sharing you in the coffee shop, if you want me to do something amazing at work today, if you want me to do something for my kids, I invite you to be a part of my day, Jesus. Lead me, guide me, do a miracle today. Do, do something in my life that I couldn't do. I invite you to be a part of my Monday. Watch what happens to your Mondays. God can take a mundane marriage and make it vibrant and significant. If you just say, Jesus, will you be a part of this? Will you help uh, make this everything it's supposed to be? Because here's the reality of this party. The wine ran out. 
You're gonna run out of significance everywhere else. You're gonna run out of stuff. The only one that can bring the extra stuff in, his name is Jesus. I simply wrote this down. Not the most uh, profound quote, but I just simply wrote, invite Jesus in your life and see what happens. That's my first point. It's a party essential. See what happens. Invite Jesus in your life every single day. It's not a salvation thing. It's a I wanna follow you thing. Party essential number two. Keep the party going. Keep the party going. Uh, uh, this might be my favorite point in the whole thing. We'll see what happens. When the wine ran out, the mother Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And all the religious people said amen. Can I be honest? Uh, they probably were rejoicing at this moment. Thank goodness the devil juice is out of the party. Get the wine out of here. Can I just give you a little heads up uh, about what wine represented back then? There's a handful of things I wrote down. Uh, this is just, again, culturally what wine represented back then. Wine was connected to celebration back then. If you didn't have wine at a wedding, it just looked like a big group of people. It could have been a mob. But you put wine at the wedding, it looks like inviting. It looks like, oh, they must be celebrating something. Uh, another thing wine represented is it, uh, it represented um, uh, a joy at this time. Rabbis had a quote, uh, without wine, there is no joy. That was a rabbi quote, without wine, there is no joy. It was essential to the feast. No wine, no celebration. No wine, no feast. This was essential. We're talking about, we, of course, the word essential right now is being hijacked because of what's going on, but everything's like, okay, should this be shut down or should this be shut down? Well, in Middle East, if they would have had COVID, they would have said, shut that down, but you ain't shutting down the wine bars. The wine bars are essential. You are not gonna touch them. Nobody would have shut them down. They were that essential. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a disgrace to be drunk in the Middle Eastern culture. It, being drunk was not celebrated. There, there was something about just uh, the... The day would go on, and at the very end of the day, you would take some wine, and it would represent what you accomplished that day. It would represent a wedding. It wasn't about getting drunk. It represented celebration. Now, I want to talk about alcohol real quick, and we'll, we'll go in, back in this point. Uh, a lot of you, when I talk about this, uh, this teaching, water and wine, some people will literally get so theological and be like, you know what? I studied some Greek words, and some of the Greek words say grape juice, not wine. God hates wine. You're not actually, you're not actually uh, preaching the Bible anymore. You're, you're, you're taking stuff out of context. The, the Bible shows throughout that, that want, drinking a glass of wine is not sin. So we have to address how do we navigate as a group of people with alcohol? I think that's a, I think that's a, a, a good thing to tackle today in this, this, this question because knowing God is important because once you know what Jesus thinks about alcohol, that's how you'll operate with alcohol. Now, uh, let me just give you some historic things with alcohol, too, that I thought was uh, kind of fascinating. John Calvin, uh, one of the famous Protestant reformers, uh, he had, <laughs> this is hilarious, John Calvin has stipend 250 gallons of wine per year written to his church contract. I can't imagine going to the church council, I want to race, 200 gallons of wine every year. Uh, what? He would use it for parties. He would uh, use it for a ton of things. He actually is quoted saying this. I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, Although food is a proper provision for our bodily need, yet the legitimate use of it goes beyond measure uh, sustenance. For good flavors were not added to uh, food value without a purpose, but because our Heavenly Father wishes to give us pleasure with the delicacy, delicacies he provides, it is not by accident that Psalm 104.15 says, praise his kindness in creating wine to cheer man's heart. I, I, I read this about John Calvin. Calvin saw eating and drinking as symbols of freedom of Christian in matters of practice and conscience. I love that pizza has taste. There's something about being free to have some, 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 some pizza. Now, I'll say this. I've never, I did not grow up seeing alcohol or wine used correctly, so I was afraid of wine and alcohol. I thought, I've never heard anybody say this. I was drinking one night and I made some great decisions. 
I had so much to drink, I made the best decision of my life. I've heard the complete opposite. I've heard when this person drinks, they get angry. When this person drinks, they start making terrible decisions. When my father drank, he would hurt my mom. When my father would drink, he would leave and do things like this. When my mom would drink, this would happen. I understand that alcohol makes things terrible. Can I just say something real quick? I know that other things make things terrible. And here's what I mean. For us to say, get rid of alcohol because it makes things terrible, would be like saying, get rid of anything that sinners make terrible. I've seen lives destroyed by careers. A dad goes and chases a career and is never home. He's not drinking any alcohol, but he's never home because he's just working at his job all the time. The problem with that thought is, can I just tell you something real quick? Sinners make things sinful. Wine is not sinful. No, wine is not sinful. Sin is the thing that we got the problem with, not wine. Can I, can I, say, can I say it this way? Joel 3.18, this is what's gonna happen. Jesus does not get rid of wine when we go to heaven. You know what he gets rid of? He gets rid of sin. Let me say that again. You get to heaven, he gets rid of sin, not the wine. It says in Joel 3.18, in the Messianic rule, it says this, and on the day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. When we get to heaven, we're gonna have mountains dripping with sweet wine. What? That's the port mountain right there. It's a good port over there. That's the Cab Mountain. You're gonna really love the Cab Mountain. That's the Pinot Noir Mountain over there. If you like the Savion Blanc, there's a nice little hill. I don't like Savion Blanc. It's just on a hill over there. That's literally what it's describing what heaven's gonna look like. I love what it says in Isaiah 25, six through eight. It says, in Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Uh, I'm saying yes to that party. Let me read you a quote real quick. Religious people invite you to a set of rules. Jesus invites you to a feast. Can I say something real quick? If we try to get rid of everything that hurts people, we're gonna get rid of basically everything. We don't get rid of all those things. We get rid of this thing called sin and how we get rid of it is we give people Jesus and the feast. Now, let me just say this real quick. I've seen people who drank alcohol, maybe drank too much alcohol, they came to church and they started falling off the Lord and we gave them Jesus and the feast and a year later they've come up to me and say, you know, we've been praying and our conscience just tells us we're no longer ever allowed to drink alcohol. I celebrate that. Oh, I celebrate that. God spoke to you. Don't drink alcohol anymore. I didn't have a sip of alcohol for my first 29 years of my life. I just felt like I wasn't supposed to touch it at all. Now I'll go have a glass of wine here and there. I'll go wine tasting and nap. I don't feel like that's evil. I, I think what happens with religious people is they take their personal convictions and they try to make them corporate convictions. So their personal conviction of no wine should be everybody's. No, no, no. If God said that to you, then that's good. Another thing happens is they take their past experiences and try to put their past fears on everybody else. That's what I did with alcohol. I had a fear of alcohol. I saw alcohol throughout my family and never was drank right. When I was 15 years old, my uncle gave me a 40 ounce Heineken beer for my Christmas present. I remember opening up a Heineken, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? And my mom's like, come on, you know, to my uncle. And my uncle's like, whatever, opens it and drinks it himself. I'm like, you basically bought yourself a Christmas present, man. I mean, that's what I saw in alcohol. My wife grew up and she just saw wine drink responsibly, it didn't destroy anything. And so I remember being afraid of alcohol and never wanted to touch it. And even when I first took a sip of wine, I was like, oh, just wine. I, I pray all the time, Lord, is there anything you want to take out of my life? Am I, am I gluttonous with food, Lord? I, I know food is to be enjoyed, but may, may I never be gluttonous with food. Is wine wrong in my life, Lord? I'll, I'll take it out. Oh, can I tell you something real quick? If you're somebody who has a conviction with wine, I celebrate it. But don't just start putting that yoke on everybody else. Just have them say yes to Jesus. Can I put it this way? Um, I know parents that I call are law parents. And law parents are this. They build fences for their kids everywhere. And so they're like, oh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they think the law is gonna save their kid. 
Problem is with fences, kids get older, they can hop fences real easy. I, I see Jesus, I see God our Father as a good father and the law is fences. And I believe in fences. I believe that fences keep things out and keeps us from going out to the street as young kids. Problem is, as you get older, there's gotta be something that wants to keep you in the house. And the thing that keeps you in the house is, it's the best party inside. Why would I wanna hop the fence? Oh, I wanna stay with my Jesus. And a lot of you, oh, the, the reason why you haven't came home yet or the reason why you hop over the fence is you don't know, really know how good it is in the house. You know how good community is. You don't know how good his presence is. Oh, have people start saying yes to the wedding feast. Have people say yes to Jesus. Again, I believe in the law. I believe in boundaries. I think God sets us up to win. I believe that he wants us to be holy. But if you're more holy, can I say this way? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. I'm going, I'm going all the way today, ready? Some of you, Jesus wouldn't even be allowed to go to your wedding. Jesus would come to your wedding, he'd bring wine, he'd be like, get this guy out of here. But I'm Jesus, I'm your savior. I don't get, get your wine out of here, Jesus. Some of you are too conservative. If you are on the holy spectrum more holy than Jesus, you better scoot back over just a little bit. I, uh, <laughs> I wrote this down. Jesus' mom comes and she's freaking out. Most theologians believe that she's a part of the party. She lived nearby. Why would she care so much that the wine's running out? She had to know the people. She wanted to uh, celebrate with them and she didn't want them to be embarrassed. There's a lot of shame that would happen. So she comes up stressed out in a sense and goes, they have no more wine. Mary's, uh, Mary knows that with no wine, there is no celebration. And a lot of people say, well, if we have wine, what if somebody abuses it? What happens in church, if I could just be honest, the wine in this story really represents God's grace, represents his blood, is that people think, well, if one person abuses wine, we should get rid of all wine. What happens in church a lot is, we have this thing called grace. And we should be very aware of when grace runs out in the church, like Mary. Let me put it this way. When the wine runs out, the party runs out. Well, when, church, when the church grace runs out, the church goes out, it's done. Let me put it this way. Uh, we should all be on watch like Mary is because we are connected to the feast. We should be watching. Does church have grace today? Is the grace in the house? Are we being gracious? If not, we should go to Jesus. Jesus, we need more of your grace. We need more of your grace because if the grace goes out, the church is done. Mary knew that if the wine was out, the party was out. The church should know if the grace is out, the party's out because religious people say this all the time. Well, if you have too much grace, somebody might abuse it. What's the other option? What's the other option besides having, oh, let's, let's just give a little bit of grace so they don't take advantage of it. Well, th that's not how the church operates. I'm gonna let you know some mission church. We're gonna pour the grace out. We're always gonna be aware if the grace is running out. We will never become the religious church. We'll be a grace church. Now, let me just say this real quick. We'll be a grace church, but the standard will always be Jesus. It will always be Jesus. We're never, we'll never lower our standard so people can feel like they can do anything they want. Here's what I, I believe it. It's the long play. People fall in love with Jesus. They have a great time at the feast. They're gonna say no to all those things. My third point is this. Party essential number three, leave it to the professionals. Leave it to the professionals. And Jesus said to her, what business do you have with me, woman? <laughs> now, I, I have preached this message incorrectly I don't know how many times. I would preach it as a used pastor, like, can you believe Jesus talking to his mom? I got this woman. And so I'd always like uh, make jokes about it, and, you know, even the way he would say it. And I'm like, yeah, and, and your kids would be like, so can I say that to my mom? And I was a youth pastor, like, no, 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 it's just a joke in the Bible, it's all good. You know, last year's why I said it. Well, then you start studying it, actually. And you find out this, this sentence right here, what business do you have with me, is actually a common phrase in the Greek back then that it always was received by the tone you would say it. It, it would be like um, saying like this, I got this. If you said, I got this, it's a great thing. Or you'd be like, I got this. It'd be a bad thing. Have you ever noticed like with texting, uh, you just miss the tone on everything? So 
I got a buddy, and uh, when, uh, when we're texting, the thing he hates more than anything else is thumbs up. So you can be like, hey, I'll see you at the coffee shop. And if you text him back a thumbs up, he's like, he, he thinks you're like going like this. <laughs> thumbs up, okay? Well, I love thumbs up. I think a thumbs up is great. I am a texture tone person through the roof. If you've ever seen me text you, I'll do this. Great, exclamation point, 100. Can't wait to see you. Smiley face, arm, uh, praise hands, fire, fire, fire. See you later, fire. I mean, I don't, I, I make sure you know all my tone. So when I see a thumbs up in text, I see this. Hey, I'll see you at lunch. And somebody gives me a thumbs up, I see this. Yeah, I'll see you at the lunch tomorrow, man. That's how I see a thumbs up when I see the text. Well, with my buddy, when he sees a thumbs up, I'll see you at lunch tomorrow, he sees this. Okay. Big deal, I'll see you at lunch. Isn't it amazing through a text message that two things can come across? I see, <laughs> and my buddy sees, <laughs> isn't that fascinating? Well, another one, how about this? Um, I could text, you are unreal. I, I say this to our, our style of time, and I go, man, you are unreal tonight. Wow, you crushed, you smashed. But I could also say it this way, text, you are unreal. Oh my, you, you destroyed it in the worst way. Isn't it amazing what happens with tone? Well, right here in this text, we don't know the tone of Jesus, but we do know the tone because we studied the Greek. And here's what he's saying. The, the verse says, what business do you have with me, woman? Let's break this down. He's saying, I got this. And the word when he says woman is the same Greek word he uses when he tells John on the cross, take care of this woman. Take care of this lady. Take care of my mom. It, it's an endearing Greek word for a woman but we take that, that endearing Greek word that would be a tone of take care of this precious person. My precious mom, take care of her. The same word that is used when he's on the cross for woman is used right here. The tone is this. I got this, mom. I got this. Because you even see it in, in Mary's response when he says, I got this, mom. She gets out of the way and what does she do? She goes, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Leave it to the professionals. Can I, can I tell you something real quick? There's something about uh, when you come to Jesus and you say, I got nothing left in my life. I got no more joy, Lord. I, don't, I got nothing left in my marriage. I got nothing left in this. And all you got to remember in the, in the scripture is Jesus is going to say this. I got this. Leave it to the professionals. So many parents meddle with their kids. Stop meddling with your kid and allow the Lord to do what he needs to do in their life. So many people try to meddle and manipulate their own life. Leave your life to the professionals. You can't multiply things like God can. You can't, you can't promote yourself the way God can promote you. You can't restore things the way God can restore things. He is the professional of all professionals. Can I just say something real quick to you? This is scripture saying this to you. Jesus is saying this, I got this. And I sleep a lot better when I hear God's words. I got this, Tyler. Leave it to me. Fourth point in the party essentials is simply this. Preparation is everything. Preparation is everything. He says this, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. I, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was single and I would go to weddings, do you know what I was thinking about other people's weddings when I was single? My wedding. <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest. You're sitting at your wedding, you're looking around even. Is my girl out there? Hey, hey, you know, we're the, we're the single, you know, when they're throwing out the uh, bouquet or whatever it is and the girls will catch it, your eyes are like, oh my gosh, okay, these are all the single ladies. Well, you're at a wedding, you're thinking about your wedding. And I think it's interesting that when Jesus uh, is talking to his mom and comes up, he goes, my hour has not yet come. He's thinking about his wedding. He's thinking about his wedding day. He's thinking about the price of it. He's thinking about the preparation for it. So, so there's a connection here, and you gotta understand what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to um, show us in his first miracle, the miracle of all miracles, which is gonna be the wedding of all weddings that we see in Revelation 19. And I wrote down a handful of things that uh, Jesus has shown us with my hour has not yet come. He's saying, I, I can't have my wedding feast yet. 
I got more things I need to do. Timing is everything. I need to pay the price. I need to prepare. Uh, there's a handful of things that I know that when you're preparing for your wedding, you need to do. One is you need to understand the price. You got to pay for a wedding. When I was getting married and Rachel and I got married, we're going to wedding day. My time had not yet come for the wedding day, but here's what I knew. There was going to be a price. There was a cost to it. And I believe this is one of the things Jesus was thinking. Jesus was thinking about drinking the cup of wrath so you could drink the cup of joy. You got you to understand when Jesus is at this wedding day, he could, it was kind of a prelude to his wedding day of saying, all right, my wedding day is going to look a lot different. I'm going to drink the cup of wrath so my bride could have the cup of joy. And really the Bible, if I could be honest, it characterizes our relationship with the Lord as bridegroom and bride. It's an illustration. If you're a fella and it's hard for you, like, hold on a second, we're the bride of Christ. How, how else does God show us his love for his people? Do you want him to use a Boston employee? Do you want him to use a guy, a guy who loves his golden retriever? He's trying to talk to us in the most simple pictures to show us how much he loves us. So he's saying, like a bridegroom loves his bride, oh, you are mine. Do not, I will not share you with the world. I will give anything to make your life be what it's supposed to be, but do not leave this house. Stay committed to me. These are the, ver, uh, the verbiage and the words that you'll see in the Bible that God shows us how much he loves his people. And so you have this statement, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Some of you, man, you, you want your hour to come right now. I believe that the wedding feast of our life, we get to experience little touches throughout. It is the kingdom of God now, but not yet. And there's a handful of things I think that you need to do that Jesus was doing beforehand. Time is important to God. He needed to build a team first. I think one of the ways that you'll taste heaven, these are four things. I, I think that every Christian should know this for your life. You want to taste heaven on earth right now. You want to taste the wedding feast. First thing is time is important to God. First thing you need to prepare, you need to build a team first. You need to build a community. I, I think of this, that when Rachel and I got married, so many, hundreds of people came to our wedding. Here's why. Because we built a team of people that we loved and they loved us and they celebrated that day with us. There's something about life. You, you might be one of those people, you come to church, I just never have a good time. I never have community wherever I go. You're probably not a very good builder of community. You don't know how to build community. You don't know how to build a team. You, you, you come and you think you can just feed off of people instead of actually build with people. I believe the way that you build community with people is you listen to other people and see how they're doing. You serve other people. You love people. You're gracious with people. You're kind with people. You gotta build community. Jesus built a team before his wedding day. So when he did die, they mourned it and then they celebrated his resurrection. You gotta build a team for your wedding day. Second thing is you gotta prepare yourself for it. You gotta prepare your mind. You gotta prepare your heart. There's something about when Rachel and I got engaged, I was working out every day, seven days a week because my wedding day was coming. I wanted, to, I wanted to look good on that wedding day. Rachel, her, her preparation was she would uh, go to these different stores and she had to do this thing called saying yes to the dress. You gotta prepare for it. I believe one of the first preparations of getting prepared for the, your wedding day and, and the feast with the Lord is some of this, is saying yes to the things he's asked you to say yes to. Say yes to the rope. You don't earn righteousness, you say yes to it. But then after you say yes to it, you gotta steward it. You gotta get spiritually fit. You gotta say yes to following him. You gotta say yes to pray. You gotta say yes to reading your word. Another thing is there is a price. I love what Jesus says. He goes, every builder counts the cost first. There'll be a price. You gotta say no to the world and yes to Jesus. But man, it's worth the price. And last but not least, invitations. You gotta invite people to the wedding feast. Invite them into the house. Those are just simple things that Jesus shows us in this little picture, the essentials of a wedding. Party essential number five, almost done. You need to have more than enough, more than enough. But his mother told his servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing by where six, uh, six uh, uh, stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Stop. I found this fascinating. So she tells him, hey, 
we got no more wine. Jesus says, I got this, mom. I got this. She goes, okay, hey, boom. She gives him the servants. She, has, she must have had some authority because she knew who the servants were. They listened to her. They listened to whatever he says. They go get six water jars. Now, Jesus says six water jars. These water jars were water basins that were used to wash your hands and your feet. You had to wash your feet to enter a place and you had to wash your hands to eat. It was the way that you would clean yourself so you could enter uh, places and you could also feed your own body. I don't think it was an accident that he picked things that would wash mankind to put the wine in. Second thing, he picked six water jars that were 30 gallons. Let's just do the math real quick. Six times 30 is 180 gallons. Jesus made 130 gallons on the third day of the wedding. Theologians say it would be physically impossible for the whole wedding party to drink all this wine. Why would Jesus make all this wine? That'd be 900 plus bottles of wine. Oh, you want me, you want me to make some wine? You want the creator of the earth to give you some more wine? Bam, 900 bottles, next question. And so I started asking myself, why would Jesus give them more than enough wine without them being able to finish the wine at all? What, 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 why would he do it? Here's why. It's in his nature to do it. Every miracle he did, there was always leftovers. Oh, food, get the baskets of the food. Oh, wine, there's going to be a ton of wine. I believe this. The six water jars, think about what six represents. It represents the law, imperfect. He picked six water jars, not seven, because he wanted you to know he wasn't done yet. So he picked six water jars. He picked water basins that were used for washing your hands and washing your feet. Why? Because he was signifying this kind of wine that you're going to drink. There's going to be a wine better than this that's going to keep you clean enough so you can eat the things of heaven and give you the right feet so you can walk into the presence of God. So where's the seventh jar to complete it? Where's the seventh wine jar? He was the one that was commanding the servants. His name is Jesus. He's the seventh wine jar. He's the seventh one that pours out. Now let me uh, quote you again, the rabbi. Without wine, there is no joy. Without wine, there is no joy. Can I just tell you real quick, Christians? Without the blood, there is no joy. Without the blood, there is no holiness. Without the blood, there is no hope. Without the blood, there is no dreaming. Do you, do you know the, the Last Supper? Jesus says, when you gather and you receive communion, take this wine that represents my blood and remember what it means to your life. Can you imagine the servants on day two running out of the, the wine? You know how stressful it is when you have not enough for everybody? You know how stressful it is thinking you're going to run out of something? There's a lot of Christians that you think God's going to run out of grace for you. There's a lot of Christians that you think he's going to run out of forgiveness for you. There's a lot of Christians that think you, that if you do this, God is done with you. Here's the reality is, you can't do enough. It is spiritually, biblically impossible for you to fail more than his blood. That's how big his blood is. I think this is an amazing miracle. Jesus said, I need them to see my nature. If I'm going to do this first miracle, and it's not my wedding, because my wedding is going to have a different kind of wine that's going to be one that is going to be one that's impossible to run out at, how do I show them my character? How do I show them a little prelude to the wedding feast? I'm going to give them so much wine that it'll be impossible for them to drink it. So when I pour out my blood that represents the wine, they would know without, without this type of wine, there is no joy. Without this type of blood, there is no hope. And, and, so many of you, I don't know about you, I fail like every day. I fail every day. And I'm trying, like, I literally grade days like, oh, I didn't fail as much today. Let's see how I grade my days. It's a terrible way to grade your days. The thing that I've been uh, just chewing on this week is, or without your blood, there is no joy. Oh, without your blood, I'm done. Oh, without, your, without that kind of wine, Lord, in my life, I'm dipped, I'm done. The last two points are gonna go fast. Party essential number six. You need some waiters at the party. You need some waiters at the party. It's very simple. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars. We just read it. When the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some wine in it. Take the master's ceremony. So the servants followed his instructions. They brought the wine. The servants were a part of it. 
I, I find it fascinating that the servants were privy to God's miracle and the high distinguished people were confused on how it happened. The servants will always have a sneak preview of heaven more than the ones on the outside. Man, I want to be a servant. I want to see what God's doing. I want to experience his goodness. And if you want to see God's miracles, you got to become a servant. The servant's got to see the miracle. The servant's understood the miracle. People on the outside will never understand it. You've got to become a servant to experience it. It's essential at a party. Last but not least, number seven. Conclusion of the party essential number seven is you need a bride and a bridegroom. You need a bride and a bridegroom. Revelation 19 says this. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd of the roar of the mighty ocean waves or the crash of a loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. And his bride had, uh, has prepared herself. She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine uh, linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. Stop. <laughs> I think this, this verse, and you read Genesis Revelation, I would submit to you an essential priority of the church on Sunday is to be a wedding feast. I believe that's one of the most essential things the church should be. Now, what does that look like? Who are we in this story of the wedding feast? I think we're the head waiter. I think we're the ones that was put in charge of the ceremony to steward it. And then when we run out of stuff, it's because we're trying to produce it on our own. We, we logistically cannot make revival on our own. We logistically cannot make church service amazing. We logistically can't make a message special. It's just words without his unction, without his spirit. It's just songs without his spirit. It's just a message without his blood. It's just a, something I'm talking about. But when you put the blood on it, when you put the resurrection on it, it becomes this celebration feast. So, so what is service? It's us preparing a wedding feast and the bridegroom is waiting to be celebrated. And we celebrate the bridegroom. But the amazing thing at the end of a church service on a Sunday is that we, we are waiting for the bride to say I do to the bridegroom. Here's what I mean by that. It's not a wedding if you don't have two people come up and say yes to each other. It's, it's not a wedding. It's just an entertainment thing. But if you have two people come up and say yes to each other, it's a whole different thing, it's a wedding feast. It's the reason why we take salvation so, so seriously at Mission Church, because we've had over a thousand weddings at Mission Church. We've had a thousand brides come to the home and say, I say yes to the bridegroom. I say yes to my savior. And what we do at our church is we celebrate it. Oh, we celebrate people coming in. You can come in with a backwards hat. You can come in with a hoodie. You can come in, listen to whatever music. We're not, we don't care about that. We want you to actually come to the feast and say yes to Jesus. And then we're committed to journeying with you for the rest of your days. That's the wedding feast. We, we, we journey with you. We celebrate you. Oh, Mission Church, when we get to gather again, I pray that there'll be just something special on our house when people walk in on a Sunday and say, Oof, this is more like a party. That, I, hey, describe Mission Church to me. I, I, I can only tell you this. It felt like a party. It felt like when I walked in, I was like, oh, dang, these people are like, something's going down. At the very end of it, I, I, just, I just knew I just wanted to be part of it. And they invited me to say yes to Jesus. And I said yes. And they said yes to him. I'll be honest. On Sundays, I'm not going to say this. Uh, the bridegroom would like to know if there's any brides who'd like to say yes. <laughs> no, but the, it's just, again, it's a picture. God's just showing us a picture of what happens. There's a covenant that happens. God is so committed. He's already said yes. He's just waiting for your yes. If you're brand new to Mission Church, I'm gonna ask you real quick. Do you wanna say yes to Jesus? Not yes to laws. God will give you laws and boundaries to protect you. Oh, they're the best thing. I believe he's a good father protecting his kids. But really what Jesus did on the cross is he wanted to give you the wine. 
He wanted to give you his blood. He wanted to give you something that you couldn't get on your own, that would uh, wash everything clean, that would redeem and restore. If you've never said yes to Jesus and you want to say yes to Jesus today, I want you to type it into YouTube right now. I want you to text somebody. I want you to call somebody. I want you to tell somebody you're with. I'll go on our website. Why would pastor follow up with you? Oh, and if you're somebody who's been going to our church and you're somewhat religious and I offended you, I forgive you. Relax. I just told people about Jesus. You should be celebrating that. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, uh, Mission Church, I love you. Merry Christmas. Uh, it's our uh, uh, first uh, uh, Christmas uh, message of the three. So we love you. We'll see you next Sunday. Take care. Be blessed. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.